You know the scene. It's night in the city. A storm has settled in. We find our hero in a second-story office, behind a desk stacked high with cases and adorned with a bottle of scotch. Rain pounds against the window. A shadow looms at the door. Then, an urgent, desperate knock. Trouble has come calling. There's no doubt what kind of picture we're in for. It's a classic setup so ingrained in our conception of the noir that we can scarcely imagine the genre existing without it. And it may well not have. At the heart of that second-story office, it's a character cut from one of cinema's most iconic archetypes. A hero, sure, but one facing as much inner adversity as external. This is a character eaten away at by the demons within. Sometimes revenge, sometimes alcoholism, or maybe just the blind pursuit of justice. We have entered the office of the private detective. Things are about to get interesting. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Felzer, joined by my friend, Tristan Johnson. And tonight marks the start of a journey for us and for those of you who would come along for the ride. That's right, it's our first season here at Celluloid Dirt, which means we will be spending the next few months in dogged pursuit of the most iconic of noir prototypes. We are, of course, talking about The Private Detective. So, uh, to start... Let's just talk about what is The Private Detective. Where does this character come into existence? Where do we owe the foundations to? You you certainly have to tip a hat to um, Arthur Conan Doyle um, and to Edgar Allan Poe, Poe, uh, to Agatha Christie for really cementing this character in the the popular consciousness but we are of course for our for our purposes looking at it through the lens of film noir and it takes that that archetype in a very different direction yeah i mean i think it's what are your experiences with this i think we've talked we talked about previously in general our way into noir and like you i was the weird kid who at like age 10 was hanging out in the library stacks reading the christie murder mysteries being like this is great So I definitely came into noir and the private detective through first the the more classic, I think of them as the gentleman detective, right? The mostly intellectual facing a mystery and solving it, but it's, it's not as much concerned with the internal of the detective as it is just the pure mechanics of what happened and how it happened. Yeah. Uh, Death on the Nile was the first mystery I ever read. Uh, and and so Perot was very much my mm-hmm. my entry point into into that. And and you're so right that the that an Agatha Christie novel is it's about it's about setting up that plot. It's about uh, it, it's about making sure that the pieces are all in the right place and the clues have been dropped at the appropriate times. And it is it is first and foremost uh 
a mystery for the viewers to solve. And the detective is a colorful character, whether whether a mustachioed Belgian or a an old lady um, who who is there to um, to amuse the viewers and to provide that um, that deductive process and walk them through uh, as they as as the case comes together. Yeah, and I think that is the core addictive quality of the format is the, can I solve a case before the detective can, right? It's, it is, again, engaging on a very intellectual level of either I've solved it and I get great pleasure from that, or it is a very clever solution that suddenly rearranges all the pieces and that too can bring a, a certain kind of very intellectual pleasure. Um, but it's it's... And it's something I was actually trying to think of, think about for myself of what is that that distinction between the two modes. And it was what you brought up about the you know the character eating away about the demons within that really clarified for me that distinction between the classic detective and the noir detective, and that it is that internal trouble that noir brings to the the character that makes it into a noir archetype. The, the noir detective feels like they are in danger throughout, mm-hmm. sometimes a, a danger to themselves, sometimes just because they they have a tendency to throw themselves into situations where where they're um, they are going to they, they're going off to the fringes. They're contending with the the um, the gangsters or the goons or, uh, or or whatever unsavory sorts they're they're being thrown up against whereas you're never really worried about Perot. Perot mm-hmm. is he's he's a uh he's a force within the narrative but he's not in danger himself. Perot, Marple, Nero Wolf. I was also thinking about it, you know, actually another big influence that kind of led me down this path was Murder She Wrote. Uh, I watched Oh, of course. A bunch of Murder She Wrote when I was a kid cuz I would be staying at, you know, my grandmother would be the one who watched me. Uh, when my parents were working so I would go after there after school or, or whatever and uh, that would be what was on at three o'clock in the afternoon on the channel she got so we watched <laughs> a lot of murder she wrote and Angela Lansbury definitely opened the door to the pleasure of the the murder mystery for me so I think it's it's a very clear line from murder she wrote to Miss Marple and then Agatha Christie and then on to Noir. And I would I would welcome the uh, the noir spin on Murder She Wrote. <laughs> I mean, it's Jessica definitely... Fletcher in the shadows. <laughs> we definitely have some films flagged for potential season about writers or writers in media or something along those lines down the line. So I think it'll we'll 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 get it close. We'll get pretty close. All those all those people just constantly dying around her. Exactly. Well, that's that. That is also true. That's what happens with. That's what happens with Perot. That's pretty typical of the Agatha Christie form of of detective, where they just happen to be in a place where where people are dying. Whereas Bogart is sitting in his office, and someone comes in and brings him into the case. Mm-hmm. Um, that this this is a detective often with a with a home base, with a with a practice, um, and it's <laughs> it's less. Uh, it's less a uh, a a circumstance where they just happen to be on a on a train or on a boat or or wherever, and uh, and murder is occurring around them. They're um, they're pulled in by by that client, by that outsider, by the femme fatale. I think that's another interesting part of it is that it again 
just how intellectualized the classic detective is, where it is that sort of, like you said, coming into a situation, just being drawn into a situation because they're bored and and it's a challenge. Whereas the private eye is, you know, $25 a day plus expenses and it is a job. And then of course it always becomes more than a job. Uh, but to start, it's a it's a job that they need in order to eat. And if this, they don't get this job and don't make it that work. Is- such a good such a good point and it and it speaks to noir's concern with class but this this private detective is trying to scrape by they're trying to make a living and um and they're um they're they're not they're not in this as a lark um mm-hmm. and and I'm excited for our first episode where we talk about William Powell because it's going <laughs> it to uh, set up <laughs> it is exactly that it's going to set up a lot of contrast for for the the character going forward but uh but yeah this is this is someone who is you know maybe marginally better off than some of the the other people that he's interacting with but at the same time he's still um he he's not on he's not at the top of the societal ladder. He's uh, he, he's navigating the intricacies of the city, just like everyone else is. For sure. And I think that also speaks to the difference between the private detective and one of the key differences between the private detective and the police detective is that a, that the private detective is also just kind of lost within the bureaucracy of the system rather than representing the bureaucracy of the system, but also that, he he is scraping by and he has limited resources and limited power in any situation you know there isn't the ability to compel somebody through arrest through subpoena to get the information that you need it's it's entirely up to you and 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 your wits to get what you need in order to get food on the plate you know it's like if a police detective doesn't solve a crime a specific crime i mean they all have closure rates that are not 100 percent. you know whereas detective it's like you got to do the job in order to get the next job i think also as you brought up the class element you know something we we touched on in our very first episode too is how at least one of my theories of the private detective and why it was so popular at this point in time is the fact that the police was were seen as an oppressive force by a lot of people who were you know suffering through the inequality of of the time and obviously you still have like the pinkertons busting unions so it's not like the detective was a pristine figure within society either but the noir private detective who often is a lone person or has a small shop and we're not talking again not talking about like a pinkerton they are seen as if not on the side of the lower classes then seen as impartial and swayed purely by money right so it becomes if i can pay them then they're going to do what i need them to do and they're going to represent me Whereas the police are not going to represent me. The police represent the state. And I I think that that too is an important distinction, both for the noir detective against the classic detective, because the classic detective is just in it for themselves. And again, for the challenge, whereas the noir detective is representing the financial interests of whoever hired them. And then at some point, inevitably their own sense of right or wrong. And, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas, and then whereas the, the police is purely representing the state and it is driven by those rules and laws that are can be unrelated to morals and ethics. It also permanently casts this role. And honestly, this 
um, this entire genre. I'm I'm trying to think of some good examples. Otherwise, I'm sure we'll get there. But this character is a lone wolf. This hero is um, is themselves against the world. They can't trust anyone. Um, and even if you look in cases where um, where the detective may have a partner, there's typically some element of distrust there even even if you move out through noir outside of the realm of detectives people that are partnered together out of necessity out of desperation out of running a scheme still often uh, often have reason to distrust each other this entire genre is is built around putting one person putting your your anti-hero against the world I can't think of too many other genres that there, there's no real sense of camaraderie uh, mm-hmm. between characters. You never really, uh, it, and we're going to find some exceptions to this, I'm sure, as we as we move through. But nothing has jumped into mind. No, it, and if it if it is good at some point, you're like, oh, this is going to turn bad. <laughs> exactly. You know, if if any time that somebody somebody gets a little too happy, yeah, I think that's part of it too, right? Is that they are as part of the text of the genre, or, uh, the expectation of the genre, it is things are going to fall apart. Um, you know, Hayes Code aside and how that might impact the ending generally. And, and in, in many ways, it, it only further emphasized and enhanced that decision on Noir's part because of the fact that Noir was so often dealing with characters who were breaking the law, who were acting immorally. Even the heroes were often anti-heroes. And so... Hays code encouraged being like, well, then they have to be punished. And I'm sure at least for some writers, it's like, yes, let's make everybody suffer. One thing that that uh that jumps out, I mean, I don't I don't know if this I don't know where you pin this as starting, um, but but uh, I would I would offer up it it it's with noir, is that the private investigator is is one of the true mythic occup- occupations um, archetypes of all of classic Hollywood, of all of cinema. Really, it's one of one of the most iconic archetypes that you can find. It's like the sheriff in the Old West in a John Ford film. This is a profession that's elevated to a mythic stature, uh, and uh, how does how does this come to be? And uh, and I, I've got. You know, I think I think I've got one theory that you probably would share, but what, what do you think, Fred? Well, something definitely clicks for me that goes back to what you were just saying about how they are the, the lone wolf is that that really taps into the American self ideal of rugged individualism and the man outside the system, and you know, only I can fix it, which. Uh, I think also takes us to the superhero, right? I mean, I think it's the same thing that uh, it's the same power fantasy as if only I had the ability to shoot lasers out of my eyes, I could right the wrongs in the world because I know what's best. And I think that that is a very American idea. And I think that is sort of the same thing with the private detective, which is you know, I can operate somewhat outside of the city. I mean, it's, it's a very thin line between the private detective in the noir where they are bending or breaking the law in order to get what they want and vigilantism, which then leads to superheroism, you know? Um, so I think that that, that power fantasy, and I think that same power fantasy applies to the West, right? Where it's, I am, I may represent the state as sheriff, but it is 
largely a stateless place. And so I am really still a force unto myself. And it is only my own power and ability to take that guarantees that I can affect the world. But because I have such great ability, either as a sheriff with a gun or as a private investigator with the ability to suss out suspects and creep around, that gives me the right to then set the world and and affect justice. Yeah. And I would, and I would argue that the, the detective rises in stature, even above those other forms, just because he all, he always exclusively is, is alone. He is a force Mm -hmm. to himself. Whereas there's room where there's the superhero, maybe Batman going, going up against the world alone, or just with with a, a butler helping him out or the superhero may be part of a, a team and mm-hmm. that it, that um, is working together for the the sake of mankind it's same as same in westerns it's is it is it high noon uh where where it's one lawman against against the world or is it rio bravo where where um the town is coming together all helping each other out to the same end the te- the detective is alone stands alone and i think that only reinforces the mythology of this this particular character for sure and i think also just the way that he's portrayed is as the guy who gets it right he already understands the system and its broad strokes and gets that everybody's in it for the money you know he's he's jaded but not too jaded especially in a classic film noir private detective he's quick with a good line you know, again, it's, it's a very idealized power fantasy, just without a lot of the more explicit power that we've come to expect from our power fantasies. Uh, also, and it helps that, you know, Humphrey Bogart was one of the first go. and greatest. And you know, so, it's like, all right, great. Who doesn't want to be Humphrey Bogart? Well, what white American male doesn't want it straight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and this, identifies and the, with it, that. This is so huge. And I don't know, um, I, I don't know that it, it, I know you've been on a, a classic uh, movie kick a bit lately, uh, and and this is something that I feel gets really lost in in modern films for a variety of reasons. But the star power that can come through in in classic Hollywood productions, or not just Hollywood and foreign, foreign cinema too, but uh, th- there's there's something about finding finding the right face, finding that person that could only be this role at this time. Mm-hmm. And, and is there, we're, we are going to talk about this, uh, but um, is there anyone that embodies that more than Humphrey Bogart and Maltese Falcon? It just, uh, it's, it's such a pivotal role and it's, and it's so important that it is him. I don't know if that, if anyone else would have had that same effect. I mean, we, at some point probably, get to watch the 1930s Maltese Falcon, which does not have. Yeah, that, that's and very the, true. <laughs> I think we'll, we'll probably do that. We were hoping to include that at, at the end of the season as sort of a brief wrap up of the stuff we didn't talk about in full on an episode. And I think this could be very demonstrative of how much, like you said, how much it depends on so many right factors coming into play because it's the same source material, it's the same story, but you know, you need the right screenwriters adapting it, the right director, the right stars, everything has to come the, together. The right, the to right time the for right release time. too. Uh, but, but that's not even that far that, that they're released relatively close together in, mm-hmm. in the things. Um, and yeah, a few years can make a big difference, but also in this case, 
Bogart, Bogart, Bogart. Bogart. I mean, we'll also talk about it. We, we will be covering many of the other Philip Marlowe adaptations because there are many of them over uh, several decades. And so that's another one where we can really look at uh, what does Bogart bring to the role? They're adapting different stories, but it, it is interesting to see different actors riff on the same character and, and see, again, just why the Bogart version is the one that stands tallest when we think back on, on film noir of the era. You know, there's a lot of perfect storm happening with Maltese Falcon because you get other, it's not just the detective, it's the other archetypes. It's Sidney Greenstreet, mm-hmm. it's Peter Lorre, it's other other things all coming together in what feels like their ultimate form. <laughs> but it, none of it works without Bogart leading the way through the um, through the film. This was his big break, right? If I'm remembering correctly, that this was his big uh star star making role too yeah i was certainly uh, he was in uh he was in angels with dirty faces is uh before that uh, oh, he, was okay. he was okay yeah he, he was memorable in that but he but but it's a different level in maltese falcon for sure right and i think we'll we'll probably also talk about at some point his first screen role because it was he was a new york stage actor before he made the switch to film and he was in uh the original stage production of this movie and so they he actually oh. made the jump and it's a supporting role but it's one of those you know it's one of those ones where like and once you get on screen everybody's like oh this is an interesting guy well and and certainly someone that that uh, again at the at the stage in his life where he jumps into the private investigator role he he brings with him a world weariness uh and he's uh he's he's lived a life clearly he's he has well, a savviness about him yeah, although the interesting thing about, about Bogart is that he was born like upper class. I mean, he reads <laughs> as not that, but but he actually had a very like refined upbringing, but was able to play in very different ways. So as a couple of mistakes, I mean, anyway, I just said, uh, Petrified Forest was the name of the play oh, turned film right. that really brought him a lot of attention. But he'd actually done a fair bit of film work before that. It just, I think, it largely went unrecognized. Uh, for example, Three in a Match is one that I'd seen before that that he has a very small role in. But Petrified Forest was his first big break. And then, uh, so, uh, besides Bogart, because he is not the only private detective, though you might think no, so. No, certainly not. Uh, it, talking about it. And and uh, I think that it's one of those cases where where so so much of, so much of noir, feel, I, I, you have to wonder, take, um, take, Bogart's um, Bogart's portrayal in Maltese Falcon, and and what he sets up, are, do how much do we think that that popularity of that um, has allowed the genre itself to thrive, or or does noir really give um, give the the private investigator a, a place to expand? It's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Like what enables what there? Sure, I do think the societal forces that were at play make film noir in some form inevitable. Uh, you know, I think even if you didn't have Bogart, you didn't have the, the second Maltese Falcon and you didn't have Big Sleep and, and that real very clear like formation of the archetype of the noir detective, even setting that aside, I, I think noir as a genre would, would still have taken shape but it would not have been as rich, I don't think. And I think it could have, you know, especially I think the detective would not necessarily have been as big 
a of a factor in how we think of the genre. Um, could be the other thing too, right? Is that both of these books, I mean, both of these movies that we're talking about with Bogart are adaptations of books, right? So it's also a second life for the archetype. Uh, and so I think the fact that the hard-boiled detective and the hard-boiled crime novel already existed prior to its translation to film in the 40s and 50s as, as a real hard-boiled genre on, on, on camera. Th- these things still would have been in play, but it's definitely set the course, I think, because it, yeah. it was such a, again, Bogart and, is such a perfect distillation and, of all those elements. And, and in fairness, too, there's also the, the inevitability of noir comes from uh you know after after a few years of uh of really feeling tightening reins of the Hayes code a lot of these wildly talent, talented wildly innovative directors who've already who've already been shepherding cinema through uh through the early sound years are um are looking for ways that they can push the boundaries of this system that's in place and noir becomes the perfect outlet to do that right. i think also it's not a it's not an accident that so many of them are directors from Europe who left during the rise of Nazism and fascism and Mussolini and all that. So, you know, I think that that also plays plays a big factor into how it all took off. So, and, and bringing it back a bit to the, um, to the detective, we, we of course have more, examples than than Bogart uh many many more we're going to we're going to be looking at them from a variety of different angles are there others that stand out to you as we're looking ahead Ooh, you mean what what am I excited for us to talk about over the course of the season yeah Uh, what kind of what kind of iterations of the the private detective are you excited for something I'm excited for I don't think there's anything that I would say is as iconic as Bogart in terms of how we think of the private detective, but I, there's a lot of stuff either I'm excited to revisit or excited to watch for the first time. Big noir sin that I'm excited to finally address is that I have not watched Kiss Me Deadly, which I know is one of your favorites. So I, I'm excited for some uh, some some bringing the camp element into that, and, and I think that'll be a fun angle to take and that still keeps us in the the kind of evolved what what noir in the 50s evolved into. Uh, a little bit more. Uh, Mike Hammer is a good protagonist for that. For sure. I'm also excited to see uh, Robert Mitchum's take on Philip Marlowe, as we'll, which we'll get to in, in the 70s. I'm such a Mitchum fan, but I've never seen his his version. So I'm really curious to see what that looks like. Mitchum's one of the few actors out there who I think in, in just severity and gravitas, um, he, he certainly is akin to Bogart in that realm like that that man has has presence on screen and <laughs> and a, a little bit more uh I, I might be colored a bit by uh Night of the Hunter but he brings up a, a bit more menace into his oh, performance yeah there's just that intensity even when he's playing like the the good guy like the goodest of good guys it's still like yeah this guy's dangerous yeah and and out of the past is a terrific example of of uh of showing just what Mitchum's capable of. What about you? What are you? Yeah, what are you looking forward to? I'm a big fan of uh, of the Long Goodbye, and I'm for sure. Real, I'm really excited to revisit that. It's been it's been quite a few years, probably been ten years since I've seen it. But yeah, the same for I, me. 
I, I love Altman. I love Elliot Gould. Um, and I just, that, that particular take on, on Marlowe, I think is, um, is, is wonderful. And I'm, I can't wait to revisit. About the same, about 10 years. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, there's, that's the thing. There's, there's a bunch of classics, like, uh, because we went with such a integral archetype to the noir genre for our first season, we're going to get to revisit a lot of heavy hitters this this season. So on top of uh, Maltese Falcon and Big Sleep, we're going to get to look at Long Goodbye, Chinatown, Pickle Bowski. Uh, I know we both love Brick, uh, which is, yeah. is going to be another great one to revisit. I, I'm, I'm pretty pumped to talk through who framed Roger Rabbit too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Like a, That's going to be a blast. It's going to be fun to really seriously apply the, the noir lens to, to that and just sort of say like, how, how does this function as a detective movie in addition to everything else that it is doing? Cause it's doing a lot. It is, it is. It's juggling a whole lot. And just to, to follow the private investigator as, as we move through time, sometimes, sometimes doing a period piece, sometimes looking at them through a, a completely modern lens uh, and, and just finding places where, where we can draw that, connect those dots, draw that line straight back uh, straight back to Bogart, straight back before to our to uh, our our first episode where we'll be starting with William Powell, um, I and and maybe uh, and maybe speculate by the end of this where where we take the private detective from here. I mean, I think there's definitely still gas in the tank, but it is sort of interesting considering how you do the private detective without doing pastiche. How about this? What's the 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 most probably the biggest uh, box office earner in recent years of a private detective was not from a noir send up. It was uh, it was Knives Out. Oh, um, sure. I mean that, but that is more of a return is, to the classic. It is. Classic it is detective. exactly. It's not. Um, it's not pushing it toward noir. It's actually right. taking this genre that's been. Um, reinvented over and over and over again and saying, no, uh, we're going to go back to, we're going to go back further. We're going to, we're going to spend, we're going to do a murder mystery. And those very much have that classic whodunit has not been done to death the same way that reinventing noir has. So Daniel Craig gets to play much more of a, a Perot type character. Or and I mean, and literally character. also Perot is in the mix again. I mean, this, this yes. past week when we're recording this episode is the release of Death on the Nile. So it's in there. It's in, it's in the mix. Uh, and of course, you know, TV, I think is something to, to kind of look at as with so many mid budget adult movies that have gone away from the, the multiplex, you can still find versions of them on, on your on the smaller screen that keep getting bigger. So just in the last few years, you know, HBO did their big Perry Mason reboot that started off right. with him as a private detective and was very much engaging with those archetypes, especially the Chinatown neo-noir version of the private detective. So I think, you know, I think there's room still, but on the big screen, I, don't, I mean, it's just, it's a tough time for, any kind of adult movie to to feel fresh to feel like it's you know you're actually covering covering new ground uh but you know we're gonna move through time here and uh and and i think we'll find that that even right up toward toward the end of our our season there's still there's still mining fresh takes on the private investigator as we as we go through so it's going to be a fun season ahead 
Agreed. It's a gift to ourselves to start off with such a, a great set of movies to dig into. So I, I, I'm excited to watch the new ones. I'm excited to return to some old favorites. I think it's going to be some great conversations. All right. That, that brings us to a close, which means uh, just before we wrap up, we have time for what's in the box. Fred, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you've watched recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Uh, I finally watched uh, Spider-Man No Way Home after everybody else in America did. It was a lot of fun. It is, uh, we were talking about it after, and it doesn't do itself a lot of favors by coming out after uh, Into the Spider-Verse, which is a very similar premise and is just one of the flat out best animated movies of the last I don't know, 10 years but what it sometimes lacks in storytelling precision that into the spider-verse has uh no way home makes up for by you know blatantly trading on 20 plus years of spider-man films and there's a kick to be seen out of just being like oh here's somebody i haven't seen in a long time return it's the same reason that we watch tv for tv shows for years and years especially i got to watch it with some people who not only didn't know, they didn't know anything. They went in cold. They didn't know what the premise was. So every time somebody popped up on screen, they were like, oh my God, this is great. It's a rare movie in that in that regard, right? Like not many films, even franchise films have the opportunity to pull something like, like that off. And, um, and it is uh, two and a half hours of pure fan service. That it is going to proudly put ourselves in the Scorsese camp and go, it's not exactly great cinema, but in terms of an enjoyable two and a half hours, it was a lot of fun. I am going to, this This would, I think, make Scorsese even, even sadder, perhaps, but I, I'm going to throw in a, a superhero property as well here, uh, but it's not a movie. I don't know why, no one has told me to watch Doom Patrol until now, but Ooh. it is really great. I think it's as much fun, uh, more fun than I've had watching any superhero television property. It's not aiming for the dramatic heights of Watchmen, which which I did love dearly, but I've had much more fun watching it than and than any other superhero show I can think of, and and it's largely just because the cast is so so good and works off each other so well uh and brendan fraser is uh is an absolute delight i think as a podcast we can say we need more brendan fraser in the world like more more brendan fraser please and better still uh diane guerrero is has Mm. the most fun role of any anyone i've 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 seen on tv in ages um and and she is very good in a very very tricky performance and i can't recommend doom patrol enough i didn't i did not think i would like it that much no i've heard good things i i have i've not watched it yet uh, but I've, I've i've heard very good things so uh, with your recommendation i'm excited to check it out have you watched the harley quinn animated show that they did i have not uh i've not watched spin. it no I, I probably probably would be up my alley i, I think i'd enjoy that i mean it leans a little hard into the like shock tactics of it all sometimes but it's a lot of fun and i think i from what i've heard from people who watch both it's sort of what you like about one you're gonna like about the other um and i think what i appreciate watching the harley quinn show in comparison to watching 
you know, like any of the Marvel shows or what have you, is the feeling of being completely unburdened by larger franchise responsibility. And I would, and it seems like that is part of the Doom Patrol yeah. formula uh, as well. Do, is the, Doom like, Patrol hits that too. Honestly, Doom Patrol's pleasures are more akin to Tenet era Doctor Who for mm. me. That, like that's the, um, and it's got a, a bigger team to have play off each other, but, but it's, it, it feels, um, it just feels fresh and like they're more concerned with hitting um, with hitting character beats and telling you about who these weirdos are than than it is about about telling some big sweeping story necessarily. Uh, it's right. So really, the next really five good. next five things and, are coming down the pike. And yeah, it's, uh, it's not burdened by a franchise like the Marvel shows are, and feeling like it has to check in. It's better written than Umbrella Academy or The Boys. Mm. Uh, Well, uh, thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when we start our trip in the 1930s, where we'll be matching wits and sipping Manhattans alongside the gentleman detective himself, William Powell. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.